0: In a world where boredom runs rampant, one podcast and website to bring the tired masses back from the brink of insanity, cannedairpodcast.com. At cannedairpodcast.com, read up on old topics, listen to past episodes, watch movie trailers, read up on the gang, and new movies and video game store cannedairpodcast.com Coming this Sunday,
1: Thursday Hey, greetings, good groovers Here's people, 14 viewers out there in the darkness. Welcome to Canned Air One of the greatest shows you'll ever hear Uh, Right now, let's uh, meet our host and find out what's happening tonight
2: to a very special episode of Canned Air, the tribute to comics and pop culture. I am Jeremy Colley. I'm
3: Jack Doyle.
2: Jeff Holcomb. And today we're going to be doing things a little different, actually today and next week. Uh, today you're going to hear part one of two of our interview with... Two-part series. Yes, with Fritz the Night Owl and his producer, Mike McGrainer. For those of you who aren't familiar with Fritz's work uh, for the past, what, like 40, 50 years, mm-hmm. he's been in radio broadcasting and television broadcasting here in uh in ohio and his reach has far uh, surpassed ohio even he's got a lot of fans out there and um and now there is a uh, new incarnation of Night Owl Theater that can be seen online at www.fritzlives.com and at Studio 35 in Columbus, Ohio. For those of you that live down in this area, All right. So we got the inner, excuse me, we got the opportunity to talk with Mike and Fritz for a couple hours today, and we are splitting that up amongst two episodes. So let's get right into the first half of our interview with Fritz the Night Owl. Our guest today has been a radio and television personality in Columbus, Ohio, for the past 40 years. He's best known for hosting Night Owl Theater on WBNS-TV, Channel 10, seven nights a week. He also hosted Night Owl Jazz, a late-night radio show on WKZA for 19 years. In 2010, Night Owl Theater was revived and can be seen at Studio 35 in Columbus, Ohio, and is available for a download on his website at www.fritzlives.com. He's won five Emmys for his work on Night Owl Theater and has just been nominated for a sixth. The Night Owl himself, Fritz the Night Owl. Thanks for being with us,
1: Fritz. Hey, my pleasure, my pleasure.
2: Also with us today is the man responsible for bringing back Night Owl Theater in 2010. He's kept it alive for four years now, and was also recently nominated for an Emmy, producer and director of Night Owl Theater, Mike McGrainer. Thank you so much for being with us. No problem. Thank you. Um, I know that we're all very excited here to have you both on the show. Uh, I, th- I think we're all fans of Night Owl Theater, right? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, um, really quick, I better introduce you to the rest <laughs> of the guys here. Sorry about that. <laughs> we have Jack Doherty here. How you doing?
1: Hey, Jack. Hey, Jack.
2: And we have Jeff Holcomb. Hello.
1: Hey, what's up, Jeff?
3: Hey. <laughs> yeah, there we go.
1: I'm all nervous.
3: Such <laughs> awkward introductions. <laughs>
1: um,
2: so for the listeners who aren't that familiar with uh, Night Owl Theater, and this is their first Fritz experience, can you guys kind of tell us a little bit about what Night Owl Theater was in its original run and uh, what it's become today?
1: Well, it started off in 1974, and it ran seven nights a week. Uh, Friday was Friday night after the 11 o'clock news was uh, double chiller night. And it was nothing but, oh, uh, horror film, suspense film, science fiction. We had a pretty broad definition of what we considered uh, chiller movies. For example, like the—oh, um, the movie above where Charlie Manson—the Manson family movie that they made, which, which is a two-part uh, television show. Uh, right. We ran as a double chiller. We ran science fiction, we ran Buck Rogers, we ran the Spider-Man uh, TV series. And oh, wow. again, we had the, the old Universal Frankenstein and Dracula, and they saved Hitler's brain, and uh, The Blob, <laughs> you name it. We had, our, our program director was A, a movie junkie, and uh, he had a good budget, so he always bought the best packages. So Friday was horror. But then the rest of the other six nights, you could have like the MGM musicals, you could have uh, Humphrey Bogart pictures. Uh, we just showed everything, all types of movies through the week. So uh, six nights a week, it was it was uh, general movies, and uh, uh, on on Friday it was the double chiller.
2: Man, that'd have been a lot of fun to catch. I don't personally don't remember as a child. I think I was a little too young. But uh, from what I hear from everyone, it was the thing to do on Friday night, was the double chiller. Same here. We're living in
0: California as a kid and then moving into Youngstown. It's three hours away, so I never got to see the show when I was younger. My wife loved it, though.
1: Yeah, it it, uh, started in 74. Prior to that, I was a radio disc jockey from 1959 all the way till 2010. And for a while there, up till 74, I was like a regular... Uh, afternoon drive time, then I did middays for a while, and then I did uh, the six until midnight shift. And uh, so I was a DJ, and then in '74, I went over to uh, television as a booth announcer. And as part of my booth announcing, I had to be the host on Armchair Theater. And because I started to make comments about the movie, um, they started to write letters to Fritz the Night Owl. Because right. the, the Friday night and uh, and Saturday were night owl movies, and there was officially at Channel 10 no no Fritz the Night Owl, but the mail was so good that the station program director said, let's put a live Fritz. Uh, I used to be just voiceover, a voiceover, oh really, a cartoon slide. People knew my voice from the radio, so they started to write letters for, to to Fritz the Night Owl, even though there was no such official character until. Uh, John Haldy, the late John Haldy, said, let's uh, create an on camera version. And our artist, staff artist, uh, went to Revco, bought a pair of uh, sunglasses off the rack. And that was in the days when the Elton John oversized glasses were popular. And then he took uh, masonite and made the horns and broke a mirror and glued them on haphazardly because we had a. Um, starburst filter on the camera. So when I would turn my head, those pieces of broken mirror would stoop, shoot starbursts back into the lens. The, the, the dopers loved it because they got not, <laughs> a, not only a great movie, but they got a life show to boot.
2: Right. <laughs> the, the glasses are awesome. And um, one thing that I'm sure is nice about having them is once you take them off, you can probably become anonymous out in public, Right.
1: Quite, quite frankly, that's true. I and I'm anonymous as long as I keep my mouth shut. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that's it's true. It's There's it's, no mistaking that voice.
1: Well, it, it was on, as I say, it was on radio from '59 to '74, at least five days a week. And then when it went over to television, it was uh, again on the on the tube for like the introduction to the news and the sports. Sometimes they'd have to go on camera to do a commercial for. Uh, Old Kroger, Big Bear, or sometimes I'd have to uh, sit in for the uh, uh, weatherman, or, you know, stand in for the weatherman. So, sure, um, the voice was very, very recognizable, but the uh, the Woody Allen, the Woody Allen body, physique, and um, <laughs> clone, clone-like face, people expected to see Victor Mature or Rory Calhoun or you know some big. Um, Star out of with the voice, but instead they got Woody Allen or, or if you're old enough to remember, Wally Cox.
2: Uh, I, I am not familiar with Wally Cox. No, I am. The name sounds Wally, familiar, though.
1: Wally Cox was—he uh, was in a lot of uh, a big, big name movies in the '50s and '60s. Early star on television, he was the star of Mister Peepers, which was a, a, a show about a high school teacher. But he was in—oh my goodness—so many movies in the 50s and 60s. Never a name above the title, but he was always a very, very good character actor. Uh, looked a little bit like Buck Henry, if, you, if you're if you familiar with Buck Henry. I can't say I yeah, am. I'm sorry. sorry. <laughs> well, that, that, that's one of the advantages of being, of being born in 1934. You really have a broad <laughs> range of, uh, of movies to see. And uh, and names and stars that you remember, right. likewise music. Wally Cox was uh, very similar in looks to, and build to Woody Allen, and and, and so was I. I. Got the same looks and build, although I've, I've got a little bit of a and Kugel waist now that I didn't have then. But <laughs> other than that, uh, uh, it's pretty much the same. Very what nice. What you see on the television is pretty much how we looked a few years ago. A little, light, a, a little lighter and a little more hair.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so how did you first get your start in broadcasting then? I mean, you've been broadcasting much longer than I was even aware of. You said 1959?
1: Well, I was on radio from 1959, yeah. I, I, I majored in radio, TV, theater at Ohio State, and uh, got a ba- my, my degree is actually in secondary education, and I was going to be an English and speech teacher. And at Ohio State at that time, speech was radio, TV, theater, public speaking, and speech and hearing therapy. And so I majored in the radio, TV, theater part of it. And I got a job in in 54, got a job at Channel 10 as the night switchboard operator. And the chief announcer heard my voice and suggested I, I go into radio, TV. So I changed my major. And uh, that was how I got into it. Then I went to the Army, where I made movies for the Army in New York City at the uh, Signal Corps Pictorial Center in Astoria. I was oh, wow. a writer, narrator, actor in the Army training films and TV films. And um, I learned an awful lot about the uh, special effects that I used as, as Night Owl uh, because they were just new, and the only people on television using them were Steve Allen and Ernie Kovacs, and so um, I learned that stuff in the in my two years in the army in New York City. Uh, the place I was stationed was is now uh, Kaufman Astoria Studios, where they shot *Fort Apache*, *The Bronx*, and *The Wiz*, and it's one of the oh, wow. the old Paramount Studios in New York City. Huge, huge, huge studio. You could have dropped a Channel Ten building into this thing. It was easily a half a block square. Holy cow. I, oh, the first day I went in there, they had a jungle set up with uh, trees and tanks and the uh, foxholes dug and a prisoner of war camp. And I mean, it was just, I was like the guy at Times Square with his, from uh, East Podunkville, just looking up the big building saying, duh, <laughs> very, very impressive. Had they guaranteed me that I would have that that I would have stayed at that base four more years, I would have re-enlisted. But they didn't, and I didn't want to end up in uh, Fort Huachuca, Arizona, or some you know some place like that. So, uh, in those days, if you were drafted, your old job had to keep your job for you. So when you got out of the army, you got your old job back, right. and that was when I I started. Uh, uh, on the radio part time, and uh, from the and it was doing props and news writing for television, working at an advertising agency as a uh, voiceover person and a commercial writer and an artist, doing the, the roughs for our clients' ads. So anything to make a buck that didn't involve heavy lifting, I was doing.
2: It doesn't sound like there's a lot you haven't done as far as like TV and radio goes,
1: right? Uh, yeah, uh, the the one thing I, I I wasn't good at at all was the mechanical end of it. it was one of the <laughs> worst one of the worst tape editors in the world. And of course, in those days, you had to have reel to reel tape, and you'd slice it, and you'd cut it, and you'd re splice it. And uh, as a last resort, they would have me edit stuff. But I I wish I had learned that part of it better, because uh, all I all I was interested in was. Either being on the mic or in front of the camera and um, I should have learned more about what was going on behind right now if I didn't have if I didn't have Mike McGrainer and uh, doing doing the production and editing and uh, working with special effects the show wouldn't be a- anything to watch it'd just be a guy in front of a green screen
2: right now I've also seen in like old footage You've been, uh, or you've had the pleasure of doing interviews with like Betty White, Diane Sawyer, Pat Sajak, just to name a few. Mm-hmm. In, in what context did that happen? Did you have like a interviewing show? I mean, what was that about?
1: Well, every, every year, uh, CBS would get all of the stars of their existing shows or new shows, And they would have, like, a three-day conference in either Chicago— they'd have it in Chicago and another one somewhere else. And they would invite all of the uh, television stations and um, all the CBS TV stations and a lot of the major newspapers. And we would go to this hotel, and each—they would set up a shooting suite for us. And we would—each station would have, like, 15 minutes with each star. And so we could do like uh, interviews, which I did, or some of the some of the stations would say, uh, "Hi, this is uh, Walter Cronkite, and watch the news on Channel WXYZ in uh, Detroit at 10 o'clock every night." So the uh, the stations would would uh, do what they wanted to the stars to do of of the returning shows or the new ones. And so part of Channel 10's thing was they wanted me to interview the stars, which they would then run on the news show as well as Night Owl Theater. And so that way I Very got cool. to meet Betty White and Pat Sajak and, uh, oh, Jack Elam and uh, uh, Michael Keaton and. Um, wow the stars of Cagney and Lacey and uh Gregory Peck and oh it was just fantastic
2: yeah I can imagine and
1: and and as I say you know I got to interview I I, they would run the interviews on the news show and then they would also run them on Night Owl Theater promoting uh Larry Hagman was there and uh uh, for for Dallas and Pat Sajak was there for Dal also for Dallas and Oh, who was the good-looking girl on Beverly Gullies? She was there, terrific. Oh, and, Ellie? Uh,
0: yeah, I was gonna say that's uh, her name, but I don't, I don't know remember who the her real name.
1: Was, but. Can't think of her name. But we met a lot of stars, and, and as I say, with the du- this, we would be in these shooting s- suites in this hotel, and the stars would just go from room to room, and we would have them for fifteen minutes, and then they would do an splitto and go on to the next, the next station's room. And another star would walk in, and we would—you uh, know, you, you chat, and you get to know them a little bit, and then you say, well, okay, we'd like you to do uh, three promos for the station and then a five-minute interview with Fritz the Night Owls. So that's the way it—we uh, met Diane—that's how I got uh, Diane Sawyer and uh, everybody that you saw. You,
0: yeah. you got to interview does Diane Sawyer instead of her <laughs> interviewing.
1: So I, I got to see—yeah. Uh, she was, uh, she was just starting—CBS was starting a morning news show, and Diane Sawyer, and it was one of the four uh, leads on it, and she was there—and I forget who the guy was that she was with, but uh, we got to, to do him, and um, as, as I say, it was just—that's how I got to interview all of those people, or if a star would come to town. Like in a, at the Kenley Players, uh, we would do, uh, uh, if we could get an interview with them, we would, uh, they'd come to the station and we'd do an interview with them. And they might do an interview with me and with Flippo and with Chet Long, and we would just run them to plug whatever they were plugging and ask whatever other questions we wanted to ask. Uh, I've been starstruck ever since I was a kid, and I'm still starstruck. To me, it's a big deal to meet. Uh, when I get to meet, you know, stars like at horror hound. Right. We met the lady from The Birds. So what was her name? Tippi Hedren. Tippi Hedron and Pam Greer and Elvira. I mean, to me, I'm just like, <respondents> I'm like the guy that's, you know, standing in line waiting to meet them and see them. and, and I know, I, last year I just
3: took Fritz to meet Stan Lee, which was oh, a really cool thing because those guys are, uh,
1: you know, those guys are from the same exact era. So. Well, the thing was, I, I originally, when I was growing up, but there was no television, and our entertainment was uh, comic books. And I originally started off, I wanted to be a comic book artist, so I had a big interest in comic books, and then you had the movies with your Saturday afternoon serials with uh, Captain Marvel and uh, Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon, and then you had um, the radio afternoon radio shows with... Uh, Terry and the Pirates and the Black Hood and the Lone Ranger. And uh, my, oh, wow. one of the guys that influenced me in voice was Howard Duff, on this, who was the radio Sam Spade, and Jeff Chandler, who was uh, radio's Michael Shane. And then he was also Mr. Boynton, the bashful biologist on uh, our Miss Brooks radio show. But he was also a big leading man star for uh, Universal Pictures. And he was too—that's why he didn't show up on the Miss Brooks TV show, was he was too heroic-looking to be the bashful biologist, but a uh, oh. great voice. And so I picked up a, a bit of him and borrowed from this guy and Dean Martin and Rory Calhoun. And if I, if I liked their style, I kind of incorporated them to not do an imitation, but sort of catch their phrasing, what they would punch up and what they throw away, and the rhythm— of, uh, what they would do. So, it, right. if, when I met Steve Al- Steve Lawrence, the singer, somebody asked me, you know, uh, um, what advice would you give to a young guy coming up and singing or show me And Steve, Steve Lawrence said, steal from the best. So that's what, that's what I did. And of course, yeah. when I was at Ohio State, we had, uh, oh, I had 15 hours of, uh, theatrical acting and, uh, Thirty hours of just radio announcing and acting, because when I was at state, the radio shows were still big, and uh, you could make a living as a radio actor. And you, um, um, oh, say for example, William Conrad, the guy who was the fat man on the show Jake and the Fat Man, he was the radio, wow. he was the radio voice for Matt Dillon, but he was great on radio. When you heard that William Conrad voice. That was eight foot tall, four hundred pound Matt uh, um, 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 Matt Dillon, but he wouldn't have um, he wouldn't have made it on television. And That's why James Arness did Gunsmoke, not William Conrad. So you yeah,
2: you mentioned Jake and the Fat Man. I haven't <laughs> thought about that show in years. Yeah,
1: <laughs> it's, you know William Conrad was a big star on radio and TV for a while. It's just that on radio, you didn't have to physically look like the guy you were playing.
3: Sure. And I, I also doubt that nowadays they would be allowed to have a show called Batman.
2: <laughs> yeah, I don't think that's very
0: PC anymore. Not PC,
2: right? <laughs> so of all the celebrities you've had the opportunity to meet, to interview, does one stand out in particular?
1: Well, two of the two of the very, very best were Dolly Parton. And uh, Gregory Peck, but over wow. the years, I never—they were all just super nice. Um, Sharon Glass just had a ball with Sharon Glass; she was terrific. And uh, as I say, Betty White was absolutely a a, a charmer. Uh, Michael sure. Keaton was great, and that was Michael Keaton. That was before, well, well before Batman. I forget what his TV show was called. But it ran. I think it was called Working Stiffs or something like that. But uh, yeah, Dolly Parton and uh, and Gregory Peck were great. And the girl that the girl that played uh, she was on Mary Tyler Moore. And then her she, she had a spin off show. Oh, she, Rhoda. 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 Yeah. She yes. Was there and Joe Bob Briggs was terrific, and he had me on his show. So there's there's so many that. Uh, that I met that were just uh, incredible interviews, and very, very nice people.
2: Oh, I can imagine, how cool. I would love to talk to half the people you've talked to in your career. I got to watch some of the Betty White interview last night,
0: looking online, and that lady would be just fun to talk to no matter what.
1: This was after her Mary Tyler Moore show, and she was, st- she was starting a new show called The Betty White Show, where she was, the- her character, was a lady detective on TV. And so it sort of showed what it was like for her to be in the TV studio as this lady detective. And at home, I believe she was married to the um, John Hillerman, the guy who was on Magnum, the, that ran the estate. The actor's name was John Hillerman. But what was the guy Magnum's—he was kind of the guy that was uh, sort of the snobby guy. Anyway. Terrific show, and so that's what we were talking about.
3: I just remember Tom Selleck rocking the mustache, and you and him are the only people that I can pull that off. Well, just, <laughs> well, that's all I
0: remember from Magnum. It's the mustache, yeah. Oh, yeah, Tom Selleck and the mustache, and yeah. he had really uh, short shorts too, didn't he? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah,
3: yeah. Have you seen the <laughs> internet sites about that? The different pictures of Tom Selleck in the short shorts, like eating a sandwich, or like, like they, they have an entire website dedicated that Conan was talking about? It's really hilarious. Well, it's like check the,
1: that new out. Series, the new series you're putting out, uh, which is called of, of Me.
3: Oh, the Legacy Series. The Legacy Series, yeah. Which series. actually premieres next Saturday, so when this airs, it'll be the the upcoming Saturday, July 5th, on creepycastle.com. Creepy Castle, each with a K. But uh, it's, it's archived footage from Fritz's original show, uh, restored and put together in chronological order. And it's a series of half hour episodes that'll be weekly starting July
1: 5th. It, it, it's sort of like Fritz without the movies. So you'll see some opens, some mid breaks, some closes. As, and and as trailers the of, for the films. You will see trailers. And trailers for the films. And uh, you'll see how the special effects grew and got better as the equipment and sure. technology got better. And uh, I was going to. You'll see. Uh, I grew the mustache in about 78. So from 74 to 78, it's the unmustachioed Fritz.
2: <laughs>
1: from about 78 on. Um, again, my boss, John Haldi, it was both, both Burke Reynolds and Tom Selleck were popular at the time. And he says, why doesn't the owl grow a mustache? Seems to be popular. So I grew the mustache and it sort of with the glasses and everything like that, it just sort of added something to the facial persona, the, the design and so forth, so the mustache has stayed. But if Very you cool. see me without the mustache, that's prior to 78. Mustache that's is 78 and after.
3: Yeah, one of the really cool things about this show is the fact that uh, Channel 10 did not save or archive their footage. They uh, taped back over it, basically. And so the only thing that was thought to exist from the show was what fans had Taped off a TV onto VHS Which VHS I don't even think I could be wrong but I don't even think it was out Until like 82 So you're yeah, talking you like know that. Eight years of Fritz's career uh, Gone forever Until Fritz was uh, cleaning out What I like to call the the, the owl cave Or the bat cave and, uh, <laughs> and And literally found Stuff that he forgot he had And we have over 37 hours of his bumpers So I've restored them and put them as chronologically as I could based on the little papers that were kind of had notes on them inside and so that's what this series is is footage that people are going to see for the first time again <laughs> if That'll they be were awesome nice. to uh, experience it so, yeah.
2: what was it like to find that footage that you had thought had been gone for years
1: well it was very exciting but I had no way I had no way to uh it was three-quarter-inch tape, and I had no way to—by uh, the time I refound it, it, uh, three-quarter-inch uh, was ranking with, like, eight-track stereo <laughs> tape, you know, or, or, or 78 RPM records. So right. I had no way to see it until uh, Mike uh, was able to get it all transferred on to uh, whatever it is he transferred it on. The tech, the technical stuff, I'm not real good at explaining, but he's a whiz at it, and um, so I refer all of that kind of thing to him.
2: Well, thank said, God Mike came along.
1: Yeah. <laughs> no, I didn't. I didn't want to do the show uh, when they broached me on that. I thought, you know, who's going to want to be interested in seeing this stuff other than, say, my relatives and maybe a few hardcore junkie um, horror fans, and. Uh, but finally, my family and Mike and some other people talked me into doing it. And we had the, the debut at the Grandview Theater, and it was a sellout. And it ran on the, on the Internet at the same time. And I saw the sellout and all the people there and the standing ovation. And I thought, well, mea culpa, mea culpa, you guys were right. I was wrong. And uh, like Topsy, it just grew.
3: For me as a fan, it was so cool to see him win. Uh, he he actually won his sixth Emmy first for this show last year, and this is he's now nominated for his seventh. Oh, uh, I said that wrong. So so well that's okay, but it, it was I'm just saying like from a fan perspective like myself, it's like it was amazing that something we could have done now uh, added to his collection of
1: Emmys. Like it was just it was a really surreal thing. Yeah, I uh, had to go five, through. I had five Emmys from Channel Ten. I won the last one in 1992 for the work that got me fired in 1991. And so that was my fifth Emmy at Channel 10 that I won for my on-air performance. And then I didn't win from 1990, well, as I say, 1991 I left and 1992 was when they awarded the Emmys for 1991, and so I won five at Channel 10, and then I, then I waited 20 years or so and won number six last year i don't like to rush into these things so this <laughs> cool. year mike mike and i are nominated again mike is director and me for on-air host and uh, with a little bit of luck we'll uh, have another statue to put up on the mantle
2: oh no, that's think awesome <laughs> luck will have anything to do with it i think you guys deserve it you guys do amazing work together Going back a little bit, though, you had mentioned you were very reluctant at first and that uh, on the sellout night you got a standing ovation. What What was the feeling inside of you to see that standing ovation that people
1: still really cared after all these years? Well, it, it's um, enormously ego-pleasing. When you're, <laughs> well, it's one... It, it's, when, you, when you consider... I considered what I did an art that combined uh, audio, video, music, and uh, acting. And so as a, I'm one of those artists when people like, I do some painting and I do some drawing, and oh, really? I want a couple of ribbons for that, and, and I want some stuff for my radio work. So when you're an artist or performing artist and you're doing stuff and the, the people like it, To me, that's very, very pleasing. You'll hear a lot of artists say, well, I don't care whether they like it or not. I like it. This is what I want to do. Well, okay, that's fine for them. But for me, it's a big deal when people like what it is I do. And I just didn't think, when they broached me on doing it again, I just didn't think that there would be that much interest in um, ancient history like me, and I was wrong. So it was very, very gratifying.
2: Oh, yeah, I can imagine, yeah, it's still totally relevant in today's uh, day and age. i', I
1: don't only only wish the cash register had had run more actually, I would have made more as a high I may I would have made more as a high school teacher than I actually made on the air as a TV performer. People just seem to think that TV performers are all six figure guys, and sure uh, such as such is not the case. sorry to say. Oh. I, wanted to, I wanted to be a six or seven figure guy, but it just, I turned out to be, I was, I was a, a good, I was a good cult figure. Still am.
0: Shoot, like us doing the podcast,
2: we don't make any money. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> It'd be nice just to see a dime.
1: Yeah. And, yeah, but you have fun doing it. It's like, it's like when I was in, in, in grade school and so forth like that. Every piece of tape that I could find that was blank, I was drawing on it. Uh, my version of a superhero or um, science fiction hero, uh, just, just and I wasn't getting any money for it, but I just loved to draw and read and create my own. Uh, when I was in high school, I did create a daily strip, and I had about six months of it done that I submitted to Rome, National uh, Syndicate, Syndication, and all of the big comic strips syndicators that did the newspaper comics and they all wrote nice letters of rejection and then I sent it off to the comic book companies who also wrote nice letters of rejection. But I had a great time drawing drawing the stuff and creating the story and the only thing I hated was the bloody effing lettering. I hated to <laughs> letter. I I didn't know anybody who could letter, so I had to do it myself. But I loved the drawing part of it immensely and um I, I just didn't become the great comic strip artist that, uh, or a great saxophone player that uh, I wanted to be. Was, uh, if uh, Shirley MacLaine is right, and we come back, I want to come back as a comic strip drawing, saxophone, jazz saxophone playing, radio, TV, movie actor. <laughs> well, okay, I hope Shirley is right. It, 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 with my luck, I'll come back as an apple or something. <laughs>
2: Now, you uh, already kind of touched on a few questions I was going to ask you next. Um, first, I wanted to touch a little bit on Night Owl Jazz that ran for 19 years. Um, I was going to start by asking if you are a musician, but clearly you are. Do you still do a lot of playing?
1: No. Um, I, I, I took, um, when I was a kid, uh, I played uh, in, in, in Wisconsin, small town. The high school there had rented instruments, I shouldn't say rented, they gave them to anybody who wanted to play them. And then you would play in the, even in, if you, like I was in fourth grade and I was playing trumpet with the high school band. And then on Sundays we'd play in the uh, over little park, uh, what are the round things they have in the center of a park. Empton? Gazebo? Oh, like a- Gazebo, yeah. The band would play there. And then I fell in love with the, um, I, f- I was in like about maybe fifth grade, I fell in love with the alto sax player And in order to sit next to her, I asked the guy if I could switch from trumpet to tenor sax. And he said, fine. And I got to sit. She was like an older lady eighth grade, and I was in about fourth or fifth. And so I, I started to play tenor sax then, so I could sit next to her. Fortunately, that didn't work out, but I did learn to play tenor sax, and then later, Oh, when I, uh, I played it for maybe two years while I was in Wisconsin, we moved, and then music ended until, oh, maybe I picked up lessons again on tenor and bought a tenor in about maybe 75, 76. And I could play blues, ballads, and bop in about four keys at about medium tempo. And every now and then I'd sit in with uh, friends of mine and uh, play a little bit of blues, because uh, blues are easy to play on tenor sax and um, then um, this, that and the other got in the way and, and I gave my tenor sax to uh, my nephew but it was always enjoyable I always enjoy playing or listening to uh, uh, tenor sax
2: Very nice You also mentioned that uh, you draw or you at least drew comic strips and that you paint and draw actively Are you mm-hmm. uh, still a big fan of comic books?
1: Well no, not for about the last couple of years because I reached an age where I looked at all the comic books I had, and I said, you know, when I kick off and go to that big green room in the sky, my oh. kids my kids aren't going to know what to do with all of these. And I had a ton of them, as Mike can tell you. Well, we ran into a guy who—I um, uh, stopped buying comic books, I would say— Oh, maybe six years ago or seven years ago. But uh, I was really more of a fan of the guy who—I was a big fan of the art. First, I would buy books that I really didn't care for if I liked the artist. For example, Frank Frazetta could draw anything, the yellow pages, the obits, and I would buy it because (laughs) Frank Frazetta (laughs) did it. And I was that way with Wallace Wood, and uh, um, Neil Adams was one of my favorites, and Gil Kane was uh, a big, I uh, was a big favorite, uh, would buy anything Gil Kane would do. Jerry Ordway was fantastic, and uh, oh, obviously, uh, Byrne Hogarth was uh, one of the masters from the 40s, and um, Harold Foster, who did Prince Valiant. So I was really into the art, and, and and a lot of the characters too. Oh, oh, Alex Raymond who did the original Flash Gordon, my goodness. When you see the Buster Crabbe 1936 first Flash Gordon movie, it's like Universal Pictures just went to those Alex Raymond drawings and pulled it out and then put Buster Crabbe in there. Absolute perfect representation as was Tom Tyler as the uh, Adventures of Captain Marvel, which is those two serials Flash Gordon the first Flash Gordon and the F- Captain Marvel with Tom Tyler are regarded as the two best serials from the 30s and 40s ever made and I recommend them highly to any and all who enjoy uh, comic strip serials you've
0: had four appearances in uh, the Power of Shazam how did that start or come to be
1: well actually there were five or six, and then there were a couple of oh, mentions. Wow. Uh, Jerry Ordway did a hardcover book called The Power of Shazam, and the original Captain Marvel, the 40s guy, um, was my favorite when I was a kid, and Ordway came pretty close to catching that vibe, so I, and it was a hand-painted book, really beautiful book, oh, and wow. a heavy slipcover, no, I'm sorry, hardcover. It's called Power of Shazam, Jerry Ordway. And it, and it was hand-painted, and he did a pretty good job. And I just wrote him a fan letter telling him how much I enjoyed it, and I thought it was good. And um, he wrote back, you know, I told what a big Captain Marvel fan I was. And uh, he wrote back and said, would you mind if we used Fritz the Night Owl uh, as, <laughs> as a co-worker with Billy Batson at Station Wiz? And I said, I'd be honored. and so I showed up a couple of times uh, in the book, although the Captain Marvel that the DC came up with really wasn't a good representation of, of the 40s version, which was the largest selling comic book of its time. That is, a, really? you know, Donald Duck, Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Mickey Mouse, Peanuts, Little Lulu, was the, was the largest circulation of any comic magazine for about four or five years. And um, uh, I was in the Captain Marvel club and Captain Marvel wrote me a letter every every month to uh, tell me what was happening. Oh, anyway, anyway, so so Jerry Ordway just uh, asked if he could use me and I said yes and he and I started a oh a snail mail converse, uh, conversation every couple of months he'd write or send a drawing or a rough or something and um, that's the way it happened just sort of by accident Um, and and I appreciated it immensely another thing I did reference comics was uh, Warner did a series called Warner Video Comics and what they did was they sent they blew up the original artwork the original black and white artwork and then they would uh, hand paint it and they would send it to us here in to the, a lady in Columbus at the Warner Studios, and we would act out the comic book art, and the camera would pan and scan and go over the original art by Neil Adams or uh, whoever it was, and uh, we would you know act out the balloons and the sound effects. So And so a person could look at that and could hear what was it, could hear, What was in the balloon dialogue and could hear the sound effects, and it was sort of like a radio show where you actually got to see the comic book picture going with it, so you could read along with the screen or you could just listen to it. And I did thirteen episodes as Hal Jordan, Green Lantern, and then I saved saved the universe thirteen times. Nice. What (laughs) other DJ or, or 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 movie host can say that? And then I was in. I did all of the voices for six miss, all of the male voices plus the narrator for six mystery in space comics where and then somebody else is the female voices obviously in uh, serious and they also have one on superman batman flash i think hawkman they had wonder woman they had green lantern and different actors in Columbus would play these we had sort of like a, a voice acting repertory company that would do these uh warner video comics which ran in columbus for about oh maybe six seven months and then disappeared and where they are now in the vault at warner time warner god only knows.
2: they need to re-release them i want to if see they, i've been trying to yeah. Yeah. If,
1: if they can find it but it was called warner video comics and uh and I, as I say, uh, my main one was, was 13 issues of Green Lantern. As, You'll have to as keep us on if yeah. you can find it. Yeah. Well, but you see, the thing is, I, I, was, I grew up with the original Green Lantern, Flash, Adam, Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman. I don't know how hip you are to the DC superheroes, but when the comic book renaissance came... The 1940s Superman just wasn't the same as the 21st or the the, the, the 20th century one or uh, Silver Age one.
3: Oh, so okay. what
1: they did was they set up that parallel universe business where the 1940s, the original Flash, the original Green Lantern, original Spectre were lived on that universe. As did Captain Marvel and the Black Hawks and a whole bunch of those people. Then there was the universe that you and I live in now, where those 1940 comic books were just comic books, but there were there was a new Flash, a new Green Lantern, a new Hawkman, etc., And right. Superman, it was a different Superman, and Batman also. And then, of course, I, I always was a big fan of the Marvel ones, too, and they had, um, like the Human Torch that's in the Fantastic Four now, was not the original Human Torch from the 40s. Mm-hmm. The uh, Submariner is the same guy, Captain America is the same guy, but uh, the Vision was a different guy in the 40s. Mr. Fantastic didn't exist, nor did Iron Man or Thor, or um, a whole bunch of the Marvel superheroes now didn't exist in the 40s. The guys like Human Torch, Submariner, Captain America, uh, the uh, the Vision. Uh, oh, dear. A, a lot of more back then, but there's new versions now. But there was no, there was no Avengers and there was no X-Men. And those are all new Stan Lee, Steve Ditko uh, creations.
3: Right.
2: Wow, your comic knowledge is making me feel ashamed. I don't, I don't know half of this stuff. <laughs> okay,
3: well, one thing to note when Fritz was, uh, you know, finding all of his comics and everything, and we brought the guy over the comic dealer, uh, Fritz did have in his possession, though it was worn, uh, a copy of Amazing Fantasy fifteen. Holy wow. cow! That's
2: the first wow. appearance of Spider-Man. Yeah, and,
1: and, and it was really in El Crapo condition. Um, I had got it from a second-hand book dealer and I paid three cents for it but I mean the the cover was ripped and the kid that originally had it had written stuff inside but it had all the pages were intact nothing was ripped out of it when I say ripped it was like worn you know it's el cheapo paper and it gets brittle and the edges sort of break off but all the pages all the pictures were there I got it for three cents and the guy sold it for about uh, Two grand, and, uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, I got. We were, it was on a 50-50 deal because he had to do a lot. He had to do a lot of work. Oh, like he had to he had to grade each of the co- and we're talking about. Oh, he had tons. I had tons. Really, I can't tell you well. Let's see a stack. First, first, twelve issues are Fantastic Four stacks maybe that were oh four feet high, and maybe. Uh, Three layers deep so to be four foot high by oh maybe four feet five feet wide stacked up it's like Un- 10 long boxes <laughs> not, not even in boxes unorganized 20 20 comic books shoved in a plastic kroger's bag another 20 shoved in a plastic kroger's bag and you find a You'd find a Vampirella next to a Fantastic Four, next to an Avengers, next to an Atom, next to a Flash, next to a Justice League, and so forth. Wow. But uh, I enjoyed them immensely. Anyway, this, this guy sold off, was able to sell, and that was what he does professionally, but uh, so it was a very good deal for me. I still have a whole bunch of them that we rediscovered after he took that first, first batch. But, you know, you got to remember, I was reading comics in—oh, uh, I started in 1940. The number of action comics, number one, that I threw into the paper drives as a kid. Today, I just cringe when I think of how many yeah. of, those, of those really expensive golden age books went to paper drives, which were a regular thing you had to do during World War II. All of your newspapers, any paper that could be used— was used, uh, recycled some way, and used uh, by the by the armed forces. And uh, they would have, you would have paper drives. You go around house to house with your wagon and get the newspapers and the comic books and the old Life magazines and the Time magazines and the adventure comics and the action comics and the Whiz comics, Captain Marvel, everything. You take them to this big place and. Dump your dump your wagon full of stuff, and somebody else would box it up, and and they would send it off, and the um, army would use it. The army, navy, marines would use it some way in something. So, I've been, gotta I've make your heart it. hurt a little bit. <laughs> oh yeah, because I had I had all of the expensive ones from the golden age. I had like Marvel the first time the Human Torch appeared, first time Submariner, Marvel Comics number one. That had Human Torch, Submariner. I think the Vision was in it. Wow! The guy named the Patriot. Oh, and I had like the first ten or twenty Simon and Kirby um, um, Captain Americas. When Captain America's sidekick was Bucky, and ah, uh,
3: anyway. wow! Night so. Owl Studios would exist today probably if you. <laughs> <laughs>
2: You so, just in, described anyway. our heaven. All these classic comets just stacked around. Oh man!
1: Well, in those days, if you were a male and you were over 13 years old, and any of your compadres knew that you still read comic books, your manhood was questioned. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was. It just was a thing that if you were a guy at the at the age of 13, it was just you had to fade. Comic books were kid stuff, and um, uh, it, it was a mark of. It was a mark against you if you were still. So what I'd do is I'd sneak into the drugstore and I'd read the Captain Marvel and the Buck Rogers and the Superman and the Justice Society and all of them, hopefully that no one would catch me doing it. And I kept, <laughs> kept reading them nonstop. One of my one of my uh, treasures is, uh, are you familiar with Frank Frazetta? Yes, and, uh, I know
2: that. Heard yeah. the name, yeah. He's an artist, yeah. right?
1: Yeah, he, Frazetta, Just about every artist working today has borrowed something from Frank Frazetta. Anyway, look him up on the on the internet. He's fantastic science fiction, fantasy, um, Conan the Barbarian type artist. And um, he did a he did a, a one he only did one full length comic book. Uh, because he was kind of auditioning to get the uh, do the Sunday page for Tarzan when the artist was changing on that, and it was called Funda, King of the Congo, Tarzan with a different name, but just magnificently drawn. And I, I, did, I did buy that, and I still have that one. And, That's uh, really cool?: Oh yeah, as I say, once you see Frazetta, uh, you will see like what all of the artists today have borrowed something. From him, he was one of the real influences on today's comic book artists. But uh, guys like um, Oh, Gil Kane and uh, um, uh, Neil Adams also had their individual styles and and were were very good. Gardner, you know, Gardner Fox was a writer. But all, all I was getting at was that I've been reading comic books since uh, 1940, and. Uh, I still like right now. I'll read the graphic novels, um, and uh, still buy a few, but not uh, but not too many. But it, well, it, it's a thing like in my day, the adult world. There was a, a dichotomy between if you were a newspaper cartoonist, you were regarded as really an artist and a great person. Al Cap, Chester Gould, Alex Raymond. All the guys that did the newspaper comic strips were regarded as magnificent people. But if you drew comic books, that was one f-stop away from pornography. Oh. And you know, when I would tell when I would tell uh, my my teachers at school I wanted to be a comic book artist, I mean it was like saying, hey, I want to make dirty movies when I grow up. But then <laughs> somehow or another, after the uh, '60s, when when uh, stanley brought back the uh, fantastic four and spider-man and them and older people older kids started reading and that is late teenagers and college students and it became legitimate reading material for them um these people are now regarded as uh, with respect and and uh, and and for their art but uh, in the old days comic books were well, as a matter of fact, there was was one guy who went to the, uh, had a Senate committee, saying that comic books were the cause of, of juvenile delinquency. Oh wow, yeah. I've heard that. That hurt, Yeah. <laughs> as did that, and television. When television came out, comic books just really—that's when their popularity just really, really just disappeared. All of the old golden age stuff. Other than Superman, Batman, a couple of science fiction anthology books, Wonder Woman, a couple of love comics, Little Lou Donald Duck, they stayed around, but most of them, the Captain Marvel, the Cap- Captain America, Human Torch, were were just lost until Stan Lee brought them back. And, and uh, it became very, very hip for high school kids and college guys to... Be reading and drawing, they even teach a course in comic book art now at CCAD. I'd have wow. given anything had they had a course like that in 1945, I'd still sure. probably be an undergraduate there. <laughs> <laughs> drawing comics, yeah. Hey, Fritz, yeah. I have a question for you. Okay, if I um, get it right, do I win a car?
2: <laughs> <laughs> It'll be Jeff's car, not mine. Yeah, oh. you don't want my car. It's broken
1: down. (laughs) So so am I. Continue.
0: Um, Going back to your comic strip, um, I was wondering, I mean, do you still have that
1: around? Uh, Unfortunately, I don't have it around. When I couldn't sell it, I gave away the individual strips to various and sundry friends, and uh, I did have some Xerox copies of the strips that I can't find right now. I had about... Six or eight of them, because yeah, the original comic strip for the newspaper had to be drawn double size on, um, you know, illustration board, and I had Xeroxes of them, but um, I've I've lost them. I don't have them. The character I created, essentially, now we're talking 1951, 52. The character I created was Han Solo or it was a science fiction thing, and it was the guy was Han Solo. He did the right thing, not because he was inherently good, but that was the only reason, the only way for him to survive. And it used to bum me out when these guys would, the heroes like, oh, Steve Canyon and Terry and the Pirates would be hit on by these beautiful women or a chance to make all this bucks, they would turn their nose up and so forth. So I had a hero. I said, "Okay, I'm going to do a hero who's more like a real guy that's kind of an opportunist and is very hip, you know. And one of the big criticisms I had when I sent it around was I said, well, you know, your hero is just not the type of moral character we want that people will accept in a comic book or a comic strip. And so that was one of the reasons the thing failed. People forget that Batman used to carry a gun and use it. That is an right. original, original thing. Captain Marvel had no problem throwing people off a building, uh, you know, to get what he wanted. And if you see the movie series, movie serial Captain Marvel, there's a place where he machine guns the bad guys, <laughs> <laughs> and, and every and everybody in the theater cheered, you know. And, and um, but then the comics code came in, and everybody became. Pure than pure and sadly my guy was, as I say, he was Han Solo. He'd be heroic. He was like Han Solo thirty years too soon.
2: Sure. Yeah. Ahead of his time. Yeah, that'd go over great nowadays, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: The only problem is is that in, in my day, I was good or better. I was I was the equal of some of the oh not the best comic book artists, but I was I was good enough that I could have been sold had my character been more moral. Uh, but now the artist progressed to the point where at best I'm a gifted amateur, but definitely amateur. I, I couldn't i I'm, couldn't compete with the artists that are coming out of like C C A D and the art schools around the country. Couldn't compete with them on any level, but I can, I'm good enough to teach my granddaughters, you know, how to draw male and female and anatomy and stuff like that. So, and I still draw every now and then just for kicks.
2: That's one talent I wish I had. I would love to be able to draw. Now you, uh, mentioned before you were a huge fan of uh Captain Marvel. How did that come to be? I mean, why why Captain Marvel? Why does he stand out above Superman or Batman or any of the other heroes for you?
1: Well, in the 40s um in the 40s when I first ran into uh Captain Marvel, the uh the stories were better and his um his origin was more identifiable for a kid. Namely, if you wanted to be Superman, you had to come from another planet. If you wanted to be Batman, you had to work your ass off in a gym. <laughs> <laughs> but with Captain Marvel, it was just find the right magic word, say it, and whammo. You turn from, you turn from eight-year-old uh, Fritz Perrenboom into the adult Captain Marvel version of Fritz Perrenboom. same guy, but you are now an adult version of yourself that's practically indestructible, and uh, mm-hmm. be a biz- the business of, of where you as a kid still kind of believed in that stuff, the, the, the magic word was the easiest way to uh, become a super, and the Captain Marvel stories were better drawn, better written, they were funnier, sometimes they bordered on satire, and you almost thought you were, and Captain Marvel was not above getting a pie in the face, or... <laughs> there was just, he was just hipper than uh, Superman and Batman, who were too grim and too self-righteous and wouldn't right. couldn't take a joke on themselves, and Captain Marvel had a, he was in a way sort of like the original spirit, where sometimes he'd just stand there with his tongue in his cheek, and 83 monsters are beating on him, and he's wondering, did I take my shirt to the laundry? <laughs> That's kind of how shit he
0: is right now in the... The Warner Brothers movies, uh, Shazam's always—it always seems more lighthearted. Everyone
1: else is more serious right. all the time. The problem with the DC version is—is is they didn't bring back Captain Marvel, who the kid changes to an adult version of himself that's hip and wise. Ta 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 What they brought back was Billy Batson's superhero. The kid says a magic word, and he turns into. A teen- the teenage kid says the magic word, and he turns into a teenager uh, in, a, in an adult body, but still with the teenage mind. It's like, it's like the magic word is a radioactive spider, he's <laughs> still the teenager, whereas the old version, the guy actually turned into a wise, hip, adult mm. version of himself. Whereas like DC has, wow, gee, you're a Superman boy, you're wouldn't right. I like to be with you? And yet the real Captain Marvel could, the only guy that could really do in Captain Marvel in the golden age was uh, the original Spectre. Captain Marvel got his powers from the wizard Shazam. The original Spectre theoretically got his powers from the big G himself. And um That's one of the reasons uh, the specter sort of faded was that he was almost too powerful. You couldn't kill Captain Marvel as Captain Marvel or hurt him or anything like that, but if you could catch him as the kid, you could drop, you know, you drop a 10-pound block off a 16-story building, hit the kid on the head, and that's the end of Captain Marvel. So I mean, it's like with Superman. I mean, Superman Clark Kent was always Superman, whether he was in the Clark Kent suit or in the in the underwear on the outside.
2: <laughs>
1: uh, underwear on the outside pants. He was always Superman, and well, you could get him with Kryptonite and some stuff like that. But uh, with Captain Marvel, the only the, you could completely eliminate Captain Marvel simply by killing him when he was as the kid. And anything, sure. you, could, you know, you could drown the kid, you could strangle the kid, you could knife the kid, you could shoot the kid, and that's the end of Captain Marvel. So, as I say, the stories the stories themselves were better written, and the kid could identify with it more. And so that's why Captain Marvel, and his and his club, when you joined his club, you'd get a badge, and he'd write you a letter about every month or every two months, and uh, you could buy all kinds of great Captain Marvel merchandise. And... He was just ahead of the game. He was he was hip, whereas the other ones were kind of too square.
2: Sure, their morals controlled them.
1: <laughs> yeah, Yeah.
2: no sense of humor.
1: Right. And <laughs> his his, his uh, chief villain, Doctor Savannah, referred to him as as the, the Big Red Cheese, and, um, <laughs> and many many of, of the kids reading him mean, say, Hey, you got the latest Big Red Cheese comic? You know, you know, okay, you're talking about Captain Marvel. So he didn't <laughs> take himself that seriously, I guess and that that appealed to me and a lot of other kids.
2: We'll have to go back and read some of the original mm-hmm. Shazam yeah. or Captain Marvel because I'm just familiar with the newer incarnation yeah.
1: Now there so, the, newer in, the newer incarnation that ran in world's finest I think from 274, world's finest 274 to about 290 that were drawn by a guy named Don Newton. Don Newton, fantastic artist, but he did the Captain Marvel art, and E. Nielsen Bridwell did the stories in the world's finest, and if you're gonna read the modern Captain Marvel, those are the ones to read. Well, well worth seeing, both in terms of art and story.
2: I will definitely be checking that stuff out. Sounds awesome.
1: Those those are world's finest comic book stores you can buy those for about two bucks a pop. I mean they're not they're not expensive at all. I mean they're just slightly more than what the cover price was when they came out.
2: Still cheaper than new comics, right? Yeah, What Are they
1: like four to five dollars? Ain't that the truth?
2: Yeah, it's ridiculous, but I've got to keep reading. So.
1: <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Talk to Joan about the whale there.
2: <laughs> now there have been uh, Talks of DC Actually making a Shazam movie Have you guys ever thought about trying to Get Fritz uh, a cameo In this movie being <laughs> part Of his comic past is
1: That a possibility I think they, They've changed When I stopped Buying The Captain Marvel old Four or five years ago They've changed the character drastically, and there's been talk of a movie about him, oh, ever since the days when Burt Reynolds was a star, and he was one of the people they were considering to play Captain Marvel, and there's been talk about that movie. They've written a couple of scripts, but it's just gone nowhere, and um, the character now, I don't even know if he exists in the... um, DC universe anymore. So I don't I haven't heard anything about the movie, but then again, I'm sort of out of the comic book loop these last couple of years.
3: It would always be great for Fritz to have that cameo where he just says, Look out right. well, <laughs> <laughs>
2: Kind of the way Stan Lee does in all the Marvel yeah, movies. Yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> well maybe 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 Fritz could be Stanley's standing. Well maybe it's <laughs> the, the, the did trick or treat does a trick or treat too? Um, He's actually working on that right now. He'll 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 give me a, a walk on and and uh, I'll take it.
2: <laughs> Very nice. I I'll have to see that too. All right. So that'll do it for the first half of the Fritz the Night Owl and Mike McGrainer interview. We will continue next on next week's episode. So be sure to come back and check it out. And in the meantime, on our website, you can Def, go to the,
0: the main page of the website. You'll see all the links to the shows, to, to all the movies, and check them out.
2: Yes, and we will be back the same time next week with the rest of the interview. So until then, I am Jeremy Collie, Jack Doherty. And we will see you next time.